A day is coming and is coming soon when we will stand before the throne. And oh, what a day it will be. So let us set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, it is always a privilege to be with the saints at Redeemer and to be reminded of the tremendous unity and love that can be generated, shared, and fostered by gospel truth. Brothers, God is truly among you. Even though you know this, I I feel compelled to say this by way of encouragement, that the saints at UCCD pray regularly for you. We pray that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is indeed the head of his church. And therefore we can be confident and courageous and press on with the work that he has called us to in this land. So keeping that in mind, would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Psalm 47. We will look at Psalm 47 to consider the kingship of God. Psalm 47. Hear now the word of God. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would cause our hearts to be attentive to your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name, and rejoice in the salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May your spirit increase our hunger for you and cause us to delight in your majesty and your greatness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. Have you heard that song? If you are a parent and you've watched The Lion King, then you just might recognize that song. It's a song that celebrates petty kingship. It celebrates immaturity and irresponsibility. In fact, that song chronicles all the qualities you wish a king wouldn't have. 
But you see, our fallen world is not competent to expound on the glorious themes of, of kingship and sovereignty. Nations who call themselves sovereign at best mean that they are autonomous. They govern themselves, they legislate their own laws, but all within their own borders. Why, even the sovereignty of an earthly king would still be a poor representation of what the Bible calls the sovereignty of God. Friends, the sovereignty of God is the exercise of God's power over all his creation as king. As king. God's sovereignty is his divine prerogative that arises out of his perfections. It is absolute. God alone, because of who he is, has the right to be absolutely sovereign. This is the unchanging foundation of his dominion. This is what it means for God to be God. He is creator and he is king. He created the world out of nothing and he owns it all and works everything according to the counsel of his will. Daniel 4.35 He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? No one can say that. God is king. Psalm 47 is a hymn about the kingship of the God of Israel. It tells us what it means for God to be king. And it does so wonderfully in two stanzas, describing his victories and his kingship. The psalm calls the listener to sing praises to God the king. Now traditionally this psalm has been classified as an enthronement psalm, a psalm that describes God as a victorious king who ascends his throne. We see that in verse 5. This is similar to a coronation ceremony of an Israelite king. Now it's very hard to reconstruct the original historical context of this psalm. This psalm may have been used at an annual festival celebrating God's kingship, or more likely would have been sung as the Ark of the Covenant was carried up in procession all the way up to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Now what is clear from these two stanzas is God's kingship or God's reign demands a response. So there are two themes that you will see in the psalm. Reign and response. Reign and response. And these are described in the two stanzas in, in, in similar ways. And so as we approach the psalm, the first thing that we should notice, the first thing that hits us squarely between the eyes, is that God's kingship is no private affair. It demands our, our acknowledgement, a response to his sovereign rule. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. 
Now these actions that the psalmist invites people to do, clap your hands, shout forth a joyful cry, are distinctly acts of Israelite worship. You see this all over the Bible and particularly in the Psalms. The people of Israel lifted up their voices in triumphant song because God their king was with them. Even the prophet Balaam who was hired to curse Israel realized that it was useless to take God's people head on. And so Balaam rightly acknowledges in Numbers 23-21 the Lord their God is with them. And get this and the shout of a king is among them. There was something distinct about that shout. Now I have been in, in churches where to make a joyful noise unto the Lord meant to make the most unearthly, ungodly, disharmonious and bowel upsetting commotion. But this is no meaningless cacophony. Those loud songs of joy were a corporate confession of faith in the kingship of God. But do you, did you notice that the command to clap hands and to shout with loud songs of joy is directed not to Israel, but to the peoples? To the peoples. The Gentiles are told to rejoice and worship God's sovereign rule. Now why would a psalmist of Israel call the Gentiles to do that? Verse 2 gives us the reason. For, or because, the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. The Gentiles are to worship God because God is to be feared as he is the great king over all the earth. In the ancient Near East, many tribal deities were described as kings. So what makes this God so special? Look carefully at the verse. This God is the Lord. Now whenever you see that word Lord in Capitals, that is a rendering of the covenant name of God, Yahweh. This is the God who enters into a special relationship with Israel, his people. He is the Most High, the Almighty One. The One who is absolutely supreme and lofty and holds sway over everything and everyone. So there should be no confusion about who it is this psalm is talking about. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And he, Yahweh, is to be feared. Now I want you to see two things here. First of all, Yahweh the Most High and Yahweh is the Most High and the Gentiles or peoples are told to rejoice and joyfully sing. Why? Precisely because he is sovereign. And precisely because he is the great king. Brothers, let me ask you, do you sing about the sovereignty and the kingship of God? Do you sing about these glorious themes? Or the better question might be, do you delight enough 
in the kingship of God so as to sing about it. You see, the sovereignty of God is not a doctrine to to be merely intellectually contended with. Now, you have to wrestle with it, no doubt. But mere mental assent and recognition is not enough. This is an immensely practical doctrine. It should remind us of our creatureliness, that God is God and we are not. It should humble us. It should comfort us, if rightly understood. All doctrine should lead to doxology. It should lead to praise. Secondly, note that Yahweh's kingship is to be held in awe. He is to be feared. He is to be revered. I hope you see that. Clap, joyfully shout with loud songs of joy because Yahweh is to be feared. You can be sure that there was no triviality in that celebration. Exuberance of joy, yes. Triviality, no. He is the great king over all the earth. And that title, great king, evokes specifically the covenant treaty context of Israel's faith. You see, Yahweh is the great king, the great suzerain lord in relation to all his beneficiaries, Israel included. He is the great king. He is the one who protects people who do not have power, who are helpless. He enters into covenant with them and protects them. But how is God's kingship seen in this psalm? What has he done that demands such a response? What has he done to provoke and generate joyful praise amongst the peoples? Well, look at verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He, that is God, subdued Gentiles under us, us, that is Israel. Nations under Israel's feet. This is a picture of military victory. Now isn't that curious? Just think about it. God subdued these Gentile nations under Israel. And the psalmist tells them to clap and shout to joy, shout to God with loud songs of joy. God is to be praised. He is to be feared, says the psalmist, for God's subjugation of these peoples. Through Israel's conquests, through his anointed king, Yahweh has brought all these peoples under his sovereign rule and kingship. And the psalm writer says, that is reason to praise. In other words, the kingship of Yahweh is based upon his acts of deliverance for Israel. Not only that, Yahweh's defeat of these nations meant, at least in the minds of of those nations, the defeat of their gods as well. So he was the great king and he was to be feared and praised. Not Baal, not Moloch, not any other tribal deity, but Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He was the deliverer and protector of his people. And he does that because that is, is in his covenant character and he expresses his kingship through that covenant character look at verse 4 
He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob whom he loves. Selah. The term Selah is a, is a musical term. Reflecting either a pause or a sudden rising of voices. One cannot be too sure. But note what the verse says. He chose. Yahweh chooses. He chose Israel's heritage, their allotment. And the text calls this heritage, what? The pride of Jacob. Now that should be taken in a, in a positive sense. This is a reference to Israel's inheritance, the land of Canaan that God had promised them. Not only did God choose their inheritance, He chose them. We are reminded of that when we read Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. And here's the real reason. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to our fathers. That the Lord has brought you out, of, out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh the king. God chose Israel. He redeemed them out of slavery from Egypt. And brought them into the promised land. God exercised his kingship and his sovereign power over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt by displaying his mighty acts of deliverance. God is king. Pharaoh might have been king. Nebuchadnezzar might have been king. But God, Yahweh, is king of kings. Our God is in the heavens, says the psalmist. He does all that he pleases, whatever the Lord Pleases he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Friends, I wonder whether if this doctrine sits well with you. God sovereignly decides who it is he wants to love and set his favor upon. That's what verse 4 says. Yahweh chose their inheritance for them and his choice was motivated by love. The pride of Jacob whom he loves. You see there are many today who are willing to embrace God's sovereignty over his creation. But not over themselves. What do you do when you see texts in the Bible that magnify God's sovereignty. When you read Paul in Romans 9, when he talks about God's sovereignty over salvation, and he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. When you read that, what does it provoke in you? Loud songs of joy? Or feelings of resentment. Because your sovereignty has been violated. Or so you think. A proper response. 
to God's kingship is to remind ourselves of his sovereign grace. When Israel stood on the borders of the promised land after their wilderness wanderings, Moses reminded them of this truth. Deuteronomy 9, 4-7 Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them, that is all these peoples, out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Remember that. For you are a stubborn people. Remember. Remember. And do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Remember. Friends, a celebration of God's kingship required a call to remember that Israel was undeserving and unrighteous. And it was not because of anything in Israel or anything they had done that the Lord was giving them this inheritance. No, it was because of His love and His promises that flowed from His covenant character. Yahweh in His very nature is a gospeling kind of being. So if an Israeli boy sat down with his believing father at dinner time and asked him, Dad, why is it that we enjoy this land, this inheritance, instead of our neighbors? His father would reply, Oh son, we enjoy this land not because we deserve it or are any better than them. In fact, we were once just like them, disobedient and rebellious like the rest of these nations. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were undeserving, delivered us from the bondage of Egypt and gave us this land because of the word He made to our forefathers. It is a gift of God. We have received the grace of the sovereign king of the universe. Therefore, fear him, my son. Fear him. Friends, the kingship of God is displayed most glaringly and most gloriously in his sovereign grace. In his acts of election and deliverance, he has shown himself to be the king over all the earth, a victor who has redeemed his people and has ascended his rightful place, his throne. That's what the next verse depicts. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This poetic language probably refers to the triumphant procession of the ark following a military victory. See, the ark was a symbol of God's presence in battle. And, and here it has gone up to Jerusalem, accompanied by the shouting and the trumpet blowing and the celebration of all the people who celebrated God's divine victory. It is Yahweh who 
exercises kingship and no other. This is a cry of his enthronement. God is confessed as king as this psalm points the way to how he has proved his kingship. By the defeat of the nations and the preservation of his people Israel. The kingship of God is displayed most glaringly, most brightly in his ability to save his people. No one understood this better than the writers of this psalm. Did you note who this was written by? It is a psalm of the sons of Korah. I hope you see that in the superscript. Of the sons of Korah. Oh my. What an infamous heritage. These were men who came from the line of Korah, probably his great-great-grandchildren. Korah came from the line of Kohath, who in turn came from the line of Levi. Now the Levites were called to be priests, remember? And their priestly duties were divided among Levi's four families, Aaron, Kohath, Merari, and Gershon. But guess what God did? God gave the most exalted position to Aaron, passing over Kohath. Furthermore, Kohath and his family had to be supervised by Eliezer, a son of Aaron. So the Kohathite's job was to encircle the tent, to guard the entrance. They were the doorkeepers. The doorkeepers. Now, as a result of that, Korah grew very discontent. He didn't like God's choice. He didn't want to submit to his kingship. No, he wanted the priesthood. Soon he found a sympathizing year with Dathan and Abiram of the tribe of Reuben, who disliked Moses and Aaron's leadership over them. And so Korah, along with these men, led a rebellion of about 250 people against Moses and Aaron. You remember that story? How did God respond to that? Turn with me to Numbers 16. Numbers 16, 23 and 24. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Skip down to verses 31 to 33. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. But that story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. When Moses orders the census of the new generation from 20 years and upward, 
and, and recollects Korah's rebellion in Numbers 26, we stumble across a shocking verse. Look at Numbers 26, verse 11. Moses has just finished recollecting Korah's rebellion. All that he did, how the earth opened up and swallowed them and destroyed Korah and Dathan and Abiram and all their households. Numbers 26, 11. But the sons of Korah did not die. The sons of Korah did not die. How did that happen? When you read Numbers 16, it looks like the whole household of Korah perished, right? They were judged for rebelling against the kingship of God. By the way, here's a place in the Bible where household language is used and and kids are not there. Baptists, take note. But that's not the point. Why is Numbers 26, 11 here? It shouldn't be. Why were these people alive? Friends, don't you see God's grace took a family that was under a deserved sentence of death and spared some. He spared some. Not only did he spare some, he gave them a place of honor in the covenant community. When you read First Chronicles 6, you see that David put these descendants of Korah in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. You can find an entire list of their beautiful names in First Chronicles 6. In spite of their shameful family history, they are remembered not by the names of their immediate fathers. No, but they are called as the sons who come from Korah. Why? Because this lineage stands as a testimony, not just to the justice of God, but to His sovereign grace and mercy. This is why the sons of Korah could sing, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand Elsewhere, I would rather be a doorkeeper. You remember that? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. All that comes from the sons of Korah. If there's one thing the sons of Korah knew very well, it was this, that God is king. A king of justice and a king of mercy. Now that, my friends, is something to sing about. 
He was not just the king, he was their king. And therefore he is worthy to be praised creatively and poetically. Look at the burst of praises that follow the description of the works of God. Verses 6 to 9 is the second stanza of that psalm. With the continuation of the same sense of the first stanza, which leads up to its climax in verse 9. Look at verse 6. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. Why? Why should we sing praises to God, our king? Verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. Now that word translated as psalm, maskil, carries with it the idea that it is artistic and instructive. In other words, sing with understanding. Sing with understanding. Think, think deeply about the kingship of God as you sing. Reflect on what He has done. Engage your mind as you sing. This is no tribal deity. He reigns over all the nations. Look at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Yahweh's reign over the nations is a holy one. A holy one. Now we know that God redeemed His people Israel and set them apart as holy. Right? We know that from Exodus 19. Israel was to be His treasured possession. They were to be a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. But how could God bring all these Gentile nations these people who did not know Him, how could He bring them under His holy and His covenantal kingly rule? Because these people are here. They are here in this group that are clapping their hands and shouting for joy. You see, this is the dilemma of verse 1 and verse 3 and verse 4. These people have been conquered and, and subdued and given an inheritance in order to fear and praise and worship the God of Israel. How does that happen? The answer is given to us in verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. See, the princes or the representatives of all the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Something wonderful has happened. These Gentiles now gather. They now assemble as God's covenant people. They now have a relationship with Him. And the only reason that this happens is that God has authority over them. When the writer uses the word shields, he doesn't mean a literal shield. No, this word shield corresponds to the word princes in, in the previous line. The psalmist is saying that these princes were not the ultimate protection or refuge for the people. God is. Why? Because he owns them. They belong to him. God owns your president. Your prime minister belongs to Yahweh. The prince of this land belongs to God. He owns people from every tribe, tongue and nation. They belong to him by virtue of his kingship. 
And that kind of power, that kind of authority and dominion is able to take Gentiles who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and graft them into God's people so that there will be one people and one king. And the end of all of this is God's glory. You can see that in the verse. His exaltation. He is highly exalted. This is why the peoples praise Yahweh. But friends, I want you to see that this is a grand vision which has eschatological dimensions. It, It looks forward. It looks to the end time. It looks forward beyond the time when this psalm was was written. It points to a, a big assembly of nations, Jews and Gentiles, worshipping God as universal king. This was what was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. In you, all the peoples or all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.8-9 that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, it is those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. And this was Paul's goal, if you remember, to proclaim what he called was a mystery that was unknown to the previous generations. And the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Friends, do you know that you, Redeemer Church of Dubai, you exist only because Jesus Christ has made verse 9 possible. All of us are here in this room, because of verse 9. Jesus made it happen. It is through the saving death of Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, the greater king of Israel, that that God's grace is given to us freely as a gift. You see, the great conundrum of the Old Testament was, how could a holy God forgive sinners? And the answer is given to us in the death of Christ on the cross where Jesus bears the sins of all his peoples and and imputes his righteousness to them when they repent and believe. See, Israel's place in, in redemptive history was to be a light for the nations so that through them Gentiles would come to know the God of Israel, the God who saves. But Israel failed again and again and again and again. But Jesus did not fail. He did what Israel could not do and through his substitutionary death draws all men to himself. You see, Psalm 47 makes absolutely no sense without the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The sovereign grace of God, that is the prerogative of his divine kingship, that grace is not some sort of spiritual red bull that God pours down from heaven. Here's some grace for you. No, grace is a person. 
The sovereign grace of God is given to us in the sinless Son of God who went to the cross and died in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. If you are not a Christian, you can be reconciled to God. Come to this Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust in Him. He is able to do this. And this room and all these peoples are testimony to that, to his kingship. It is in that cross that God's justice and mercy meet. And it is through him that we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of his cross. This is the good news for all peoples, for all nations. This is what Jesus did for us. Remember that passage that James read for us? Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God has gone up with a shout. Christ is victorious. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe. And crown him Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And he reigns with all authority. And he calls us by the way. To respond to that authority. To that kingship. Remember Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth. Has been given to me. Therefore do what? Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So as we we labor in the task of evangelism and discipleship. And planting churches. Baptizing disciples and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. We ought to realize that the task is great. But we ought to remind ourselves that we have a great king. What we do with the great commission should tell us how we are responding to his kingship and authority. Do you recognize his kingship? How do you respond to Matthew 28? God put all things under the feet of Jesus as as Glenn reminded us this morning. 
And he gave him as head over all things to the church. The church is meant to be a display of God's glory to a watching world. Why would you not go when Christ has conquered all? This is not some obscure mission. This is how the manifold wisdom of God is displayed to all the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The princes of the people will gather as the people of the God of Abraham because they belong to him. They will come because he is highly exalted. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So brothers, do you acknowledge his kingship? Do you believe verse 9? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of Jesus. Christ rules savingly over his people. The kingdom of God already present but not fully realized is the exercise of God's sovereignty in the world toward the eventual redemption of all creation and the joyous praises of all the nations around his throne. What do we do till then? Well, we sing, we proclaim, we pray, and we preach of his sovereign grace, of his gospel. Revere him, for he is king. Marvel at his wisdom, the foolishness of the cross, for he is king. Rejoice in his irresistible grace, for he is king. Magnify his mercy, for he is king. Delight in his beauty, for he is king. Be glad in his preservation, for he is king. Be steadfast in perseverance, for he is king. Be humbled by his blessings, for he is king. Yearn for holiness, because he is king. Be zealous for good works, for he is king. Be ambitious for lost souls, for he is king. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them, for he is king. Love one another to show the world that he is king. Be comforted in sorrow, for he is king. And rest in his security, for he is king. And be ready for the return of your king. Let us pray. Father, we confess that you, O Lord, are King. We rejoice in what our Savior has done. And O Lord, help us realize and be convicted and rejoice from our hearts and celebrate your sovereign grace. Father, we pray that Grace realized would spur us on to obedience and faithfulness. Help us do this by your spirit. For Christ's name we pray. Amen.